Well, it's a privilege to be here again and look at God's Word on the first Sunday of the new year. Last week we looked at Psalm 4, today it's Psalm 5, and next Sunday it will be Psalm 6. So last week we mentioned that for most Christians you're either a Psalms person and you love the songs, or you're not really a Psalms person. But the fact is the Psalms is filled with history and theology, but it's captured in Hebrew poetry. And so for us engineering minds, we want things systematized. But the Psalms are not like that. It's fragmented and it's unsystematic. But the fact is the Psalms is filled with actual history of personal encounters with Yahweh. And if you're unfamiliar with Yahweh, Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God, the creator of the world, creator of heaven and earth, land and sea, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus, his Hebrew name is Yeshua. So Yahweh and Yeshua, we know today as the covenant names of God. But this is God's Hebrew name. And it was transliterated into Greek, and they transliterated Yahweh as Jehovah. But Jehovah in English is pronounced, and they sound very different. But in the original pronunciation, Yahweh and Yahweh sounds very similar. So today in English, we talk about Yahweh or Jehovah. And when we talk about those, it's the personal name. It's the same name, just in two different languages, as God the Father, the Creator. And Jesus. So as we read through the Psalms, we can feel the anguish, we can feel the hurt, we can feel the distress, we can feel the joy of the psalmist, of the author of the Psalms. And this is why it has value, and this is why God has given the Psalms to us. Remember, Psalms is songs, songs of the heart. If we just step back a little bit from that and look at the book of Psalms, the general purpose, the overall purpose of the book of Psalms is firstly to bring glory to God, but secondly to encourage believers, to encourage us. It's revealed this encouragement and the glory to God through different types of Psalms. Not all the Psalms are prayers, like Psalm 4, 5, and 6 of King David. But they're psalms of, or songs, psalms of lament, songs of praise, songs of worship. And we know that the ultimate author of the psalms is the Lord. But humanly speaking, and this is a very interesting difference with Islam. Islam does not want to recognize that there's human authors to the Quran. It was written by God. We declare the same. But we say, you know, through the Lord's inspiration, there was also a human author. And in that way, it was God-breathed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we see that there's 73 psalms written by King David. And he's the author of Psalm 4, 5, and 6 that we're looking at at the moment. But we also have Asaph. We have the sons of Korah. We have Solomon. We have Moses. We have Heman. Ethan, and Ezra. 
And then there's a couple of songs that has unknown authors, so there might be a ninth author. We don't know. Remember that the first psalm, and I mentioned this back on 1st January last year, the first psalm that was written is Psalm 90, written by Moses. The last psalm recorded to be written is Psalm 126 by Ezra. So between Psalm 90 and Psalm 126, all the psalms were collected over a span of about a thousand years. So this book of the Psalms is brought together by God through inspiration over a thousand years. And so it represents the heart and the faith of God's people over that period of time. But it's also good for us to take another step back from the book of Psalms and be reminded that God's Word, the Bible that we read from this morning, is one book composed of two testaments, the Old Testament with 39 books. And in those 39 books, God's unfolding promise to his chosen people, Israel, is revealed. And we have the New Testament with 27 books. And these 27 books reveal to us the fulfillment of those promises in the Old Testament in the person of Jesus Christ that all those promises is fulfilled equally to Jews and Gentiles. And of course, we are the Gentiles, unless you're Jewish. So it covers everybody. If you're not Jew, you're Gentile, everybody. So it's revealed to all of us that the fulfillment of these promises is in the person of Jesus Christ. The New Testament explains the person and the work, the life of Christ, and how does it do that? It, it does that by using the Old Testament as the foundation. Without those promises to God's people, the revelation of Jesus has no foundation. So the Old Testament is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. I'm sure a lot of you have heard that. But it's good to be reminded that these two testaments are one book. These 66 books in the Bible is one book. And today we are in one book of the Old Testament, Psalms, and we're looking at one song. But it's good to not get lost in the detail and just step back and remember what it is that we are looking at. We also have the benefit in the New Testament that Jesus gave his opinion about the New and the Old Testament. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus, after his resurrection, encountered two of his disciples, Cleopas and Simon. And he went and he walked next to them, and he rebuked them for their unbelief. And he started teaching them how to read the Old Testament. In Luke 24, from verse 26, we read, and Jesus said this, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them what, he, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So in these two verses, Luke captures for our benefit how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament. 
He did not read it as a book just focused on the Jews. Jesus saw it as a book revealing himself. The purpose of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Later in Luke 24, when Jesus returned to the upper room, in verse 44, he says again, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So this time, Jesus gave the boundaries of the Old Testament and declaring that everything written in the Hebrew Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, pointed to him. And it's a great reminder that as we go into the detail of Psalm 5 this morning, I pray that this revelation of our Lord Jesus will continue to be the focal point. We have the benefit of Christ revealed. And so as we go back to the Old Testament, we need to always be conscious of where Christ is in the text that we're working through. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 5. We're going to read Psalm 5 together. I'm reading from the, the NIV, the New International Version. Psalm 5, from verse 1. Psalm 5, for the director of music, for flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their hearts is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing, let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. So before we work through the detail of Psalm 5, let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we approach your throne this morning. Lord, we, we praise and glorify your name as our creator and our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord and our King. We, 
We pray that the life-giving truth recorded for us in Psalm 5 by your servant David will be opened to us this morning through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear and open, receiving, and humble hearts. Lord, I pray that you will move among us this morning, renew us, encourage us, and fill us with joy and surround us with your favor as with a shield. In Jesus' almighty name we pray. Amen. Right, so Psalm 5. For the director of music, four pipes, a psalm of David. So the first thing we notice is that it's a psalm of David. But it's helpful to remember, the same as last week, that this is a mature King David. This Psalm 5 is recorded when he was about 65 years old. Remember, David passed away. He died at about the age of 70. So this is in the last years of his reign as king. And it's good to remember that everything that has happened with David is behind him at this point. All his victories, all his glories, but also all his shortcomings, all his failures. We also notice that this week it's a psalm for pipes, in other words, flutes or trumpets. Last, year, uh, last week it was a psalm for stringed instruments. So this is David's instruction to the director of music, please accompany the worship choir with flutes in this song. So verse 1, David starts, Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Consider my lament. David is longing for the, for the Lord to hear him. Psalm 4, David starts by asking the Lord to answer him, speak. This week, David's asking the Lord to hear him. In our English translations, we can still see some of the poetic structure because he repeats his petition in verse 1, 2, and 3. He says, Lord, listen to my words in verse 1. Hear my cry for help, verse 2. And hear my voice, verse 3. And he does this because it has the effect that it intensifies the petition. Consider my lament. Consider my sighing. Consider my meditation. Consider my words. Consider my groaning. Is all the variations of the translation. So that has a very broad meaning. It means, Lord, consider the things I'm saying, but also consider the things I'm not saying. Things that I cannot say. Things that I do not know how to say. This is the groanings of our heart. And it's also worth noticing that we usually ask someone to consider something before a decision or an action is to be taken. So if we, for instance, in a court situation, we usually finish and ask the judge, judge, please consider all of these facts before making a decision. So in a way, David starts his prayer by saying, Lord, please consider everything. And it's not that the Lord doesn't know everything. David says this because this is what his heart needs as he's drawing closer to God. Verse 2, hear my cry for help, my, my King and my God, for to you I pray. 
in Psalm 4, we saw David addressing the Lord as his, his righteous God and his God of glory. Here in Psalm 5, David's addressing the Lord as his king and his God. So remember again, this is coming from a man who was king himself. At this point, he reigned as king for about 30 years, 35 years. <clears throat> so David clearly understands where the true authority in this world sits. He clearly understands to whom true authority belongs. So David understands that God is the king of this world. God's not just the God of Israel, but he's also the God of this world, the God of this universe, and the king of the earth. In Revelation 1 we read, Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. In Revelation 19 we read, on his robe and on his thigh, that is Jesus' robe, Jesus' thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So this King and God that David is praying to is revealed to us as Jesus. Jesus is our King and our God. And David continues then and he says, it's to you that I pray, Lord. David knows who he's praying to. Of course, Jesus was to him still concealed. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew that he was praying to the one true living God. It may sound elementary and pedantic, but this is a very important aspect of prayer. And it applies to us today as much as it did to David. So often our prayers are filled with petitions and requests and emotions and thanks. That, that, is, that consumes our minds. But we never consciously make the effort to approach God personally. The reason I mentioned God's covenant name, Yahweh, is because God is a personal God. Theologian Reuben Torrey wrote a book over a hundred years ago about how to pray. And back then he said, very much of so-called prayer, public and private, is not unto God. For a prayer to be unto God, there must be a definite and conscious approach to God. A few years ago, I attended the morning prayer breakfast, parliamentary prayer breakfast. And for the whole, the prayer breakfast has always been edifying. But this one year, one of the people that contributed to the prayer that, that morning started the prayer by saying, Oh, great spirit of the earth. And the rest of the prayer was pretty good, asking for the right things. But at that moment, I had to open my eyes and not participate in the prayer. Because that prayer was not directed to the God as he revealed himself to us. God is not a general God. He's a specific God. 
He's the king of this world. And he's the God of this world. The only one. And his name is Jesus. Perhaps we can agree all to do a bit of a prayer challenge this week. And just work on spending the first five minutes of your prayer time to approach God. If it means starting by just being silent. You know how we start our worship service by our call to worship. And we're reminded now, please turn your hearts and your minds towards the God that we worship. And this is the same way we should start our prayers. This is what David's doing. If it helps, prepare beforehand. Make a list. What are you going to say about God in this first five minutes? Do you have enough to say to fill five minutes? Do you know enough about God's identity and his nature to declare this to him for five minutes? It's very important. Because to come into God's presence, we need to approach God specifically. He's not revealed himself to us by name, in person, in the flesh, so that we can be general about who we pray to. So David continues and he says, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my request before you and I wait expectantly. So these words also lead this to be classed as a morning psalm for obvious reasons because it starts by saying in the morning. But it also shows us that David made a point to start his day with the Lord. He says, hear my voice. You hear my voice. This is not a question. This is a statement. David says, Lord, you hear my voice in the morning. And what this reveals to us is that something happened in David's past to make him confident of making this statement. So when he says, you hear my voice, David is making a statement of faith in the Lord. To say, Lord, so many mornings before you have heard my voice. And therefore, he can make the statement, you hear my voice. It's not a question. It's a statement. It's his statement of faith. And then he says, you hear my Lord, my voice as I lay my requests before you. The King James translated as, in the morning I direct it to you and I will look up. By direct it to you, it means my voice. So the King James translates it as, in the morning, I will direct my voice to you. And I will continue to look up. So David is not just worshipping with his heart and his mind. He's worshipping with his voice and with his eyes. He's using his senses, his whole body. And this is something we are also lacking in. Don't be afraid. In your prayer time, to raise your hands to the Lord, to look up to Him, to speak audibly, to use your senses. Now from verse 4 to 6, we see David changing focus a bit, and he uses negatively phrased statements to focus on God's standard. So now David moves to making a statement about God's nature. He says, for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. 
The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. You, Lord, detest. So David here starts focusing on his confidence in God's purity. So David is reminding himself. Not God doesn't need the reminder. David is preaching to his own heart what the nature of God is. And that's why it's so important for us to approach God specifically. Because when you come into the presence of God, what's the first thing that happens? You are made aware of His holiness and your brokenness. That's the first effect. And we see that all throughout Scripture with all the prophets who come into God's presence. So we see that as David drew closer to the Lord in his prayer, he becomes aware of God's nature. And he declares this. He said, yes, Lord, these things cannot stand before you. And this is an important thing for us to consider this morning. Before the Lord, what we do is important. Do you realize that the Lord is not pleased with wickedness? He's not pleased with evil or arrogant people. And we can still all nod to that because the evil and the wicked people are over there. They're not here. And I truly believe that. But then he continues to say, the Lord is not pleased with people that do wrong. And here, I collapse. And I'm convicted, Lord, I do wrong. All the time. David did wrong. David spilled blood. He lied. So coming before the Lord convicts us of our brokenness. So do you see the dilemma we have? We are not casually wandering in into the Lord's presence when we come to worship Him. There's a real problem that needs to be addressed here. And it's, it's our prideful hearts. It's our sinful nature. Because we are so good at telling ourselves we are right. No, the Lord will agree with my plan here. The Lord will agree with what I'm saying. This is not so bad. We have so many things we kind of preach to our hearts just to put our conscience at ease. But this morning, in David's song, he's very clearly saying to us, everything under the sun is captured under those who do wrong. We are part of that. We cannot enter God's presence. How is this dilemma fixed? This problem of sin. Remember, Christ was still concealed for David. So what is David's solution? What does David do? Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the answer. But I, by your great love, Lord, can come into your house. By your great love. David did not understand yet what Jesus was going to do. 
But he understood that it was by God's great love. So this verse, verse 7, is the pivot, is the middle point, middle point of this psalm. The one thing that makes David change direction and declare, Lord, that I can now enter your house is by the Lord's great love. It's the one difference. We read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish. So David's not here saying, Lord, because I am righteous, I can enter your house, but all those wicked people, they can't. That's not what David's saying. David's saying, no, Lord, it's because of your love that I can enter this house. Because of your love that I can put my trust in you. Because you were faithful to me first. You showed me how to slay the lion, to slay Goliath. You rescued me from my enemy. So now remember David's life. He's at 65 now. And instead of mentioning all the, the worthy things that David did in his life, he says, no, Lord, it's your great love. All of these things that has happened to me, what remarkable man David was, he doesn't even come into his mind. The one thing that is front and center for David is God's great love. And because of this great love, because of what Christ has done for me and for you, David continues in reverence, Lord. Now, because of what I understand, what you have done, in reverence I bow down towards your holy temple. So in reverence and in fear means to be silent, respectful, in awe, and, and, and completely conscious of God's holiness and our need for him to rec uh, declare us righteous. Because without that, without his imputed righteousness, that means his righteousness given to us, we cannot enter his house. We stay with this group of people that do wrong, that God hates, and that he will come to judge. David continues, we're in verse 8 now. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. We can also read this as, because I have enemies, please teach me what is right and teach me to follow you. What does the New Testament reveal to us? Who is our enemies? We know David, at this point, was pursued by Absalom and Absalom's armies, his son. The New Testament has revealed to us our enemy is our flesh, the world, and Satan's kingdom, the fallen kingdom. And so what we are praying is, Lord, because of my enemies, which includes my flesh, my broken heart, the world, and Satan and his kingdom, because of those enemies, please teach me, lead me, show me the way, show me what is right. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful. We cannot rely on the truth that is in our hearts. 
because our flesh is our enemy. God needs to reveal his truth to us. So David is teaching, Lord, teach me not to think that it's my doing as king that deserves entry into your house. Teach me not to judge my enemies because I can as a king. I have the authority to just issue a death warrant. Teach me that it's not for me to do things in my own strength. It's not for me to rescue myself from my enemies. Although perhaps you can. But he's, he's asking the Lord, please do this. Teach me. Teach me how to leave it with you. Teach me not to blurb out my own opinion about anything. Teach me to be silent. Teach me to be respectful. David's saying, Lord, please teach me. And he's saying this. Remember, he's just declared to us the one reason why he can be in God's house is God's great love. And because of that, out of thankfulness, out of reverence, David is now saying to the Lord, yes, Lord, I cannot do it. Teach me. So even at his age of 65, he's still saying, teach me. He's teachable. John MacArthur says we have a disease, and our disease is we have foot and mouth disease. So I'm not saying we are like a bunch of cattle, but our talk and our walk is infected. And David understood this of what Jesus later taught because he said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What your heart is filled of flows over into what you do and what you say. So David is constantly relying on the Lord, even at this mature age. He said, Lord, please lead me, even in this dilemma. And he knows that, again, it's only God that can save him from this. There's no other authority so he's appealing to the one that he fears the most because he knows that it's only the mighty God, the king of this world, that can do anything about his situation. He continues in verse 9, Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their hearts are filled with malice. Their throats an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. So David's still focusing here on, on what the wicked do. What they say and what they do is proof of their wickedness. Isn't that true? The New Testament reveals to us, by your fruit you will be known. Uh, James writes, show me a faith without works is a dead faith. A faith without fruit is not alive, is not true faith. So our works matter. What we do matters. Not because it earns anything before God, but it shows what your heart is filled with. It shows what your mind is filled with. It shows where your aspirations are. It shows where your desires are. So David clearly understood what Jesus taught. 
when he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our righteousness or our wickedness will sooner or later surface. It cannot stay hidden. So when things start happening in your life, think about where is this coming from? You've heard the analogy of the bottle of water. I see Liam's got a bottle of water. <laughs> if you shake the bottle of water and water comes out, why is the water coming out? Because the bottle's being shaken, maybe? But because there's water in the bottle, that's why water's coming out. So what's in your heart, as soon as your life gets shaken up, is what's going to come out. And this is clearly what David understands. And he prays to the Lord, Lord, please teach me, lead me, so that my heart is filled with the truth of who you are. He continues in verse 10, Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. So David's not praying for just uh, an end according to God's standard and justice. He's not declaring a verdict on the wicked himself. He's leaving it. He's not pronouncing them guilty. He's calling on the Lord as the only just, uh, justice of this world to declare them guilty against God's standard. So he knows that the guilty verdict belongs to God. Even as the king, again, remember, he's the king and he has the earthly authority to make these verdicts. But he's declaring, no, Lord, you declare them guilty. So in his private prayer, he would ask the Lord, please hear me. I know these people are, on, are sinning against me, these wicked people. But Lord, you are the judge. You deal with them because I trust in you. And then from verse 11, David starts closing out his prayer. But let all those who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as a shield. Let all those rejoice who trust in you. We saw in Psalm 4 verse 7 that David prayed for joy. He also finished his prayer by asking the Lord to fill his heart with joy. And here he does the same thing again. Let all who take refuge in you, in other words, all that have faith in you, all that place their trust in you, Lord, may they be filled with joy. And for all those that are righteous in our Lord Jesus... If you have placed your faith in Jesus, it's right that we are reminded of the blessings that we have in Jesus because we forget. We have permission to be joyful in the Lord. Even in the most distressing circumstances, we have permission to be filled with the joy of the Lord. And this takes constant and continued teaching. That is why correct Bible teaching, pure T 
teaching is so important because we need to be reminded of this blessing we have in the Lord. We have a promise of joy. When we place our trust in Jesus, he said, I sent my son so that those who believe in him will not perish. We have a promise of joy, but yet so often we come before the Lord heavy laden, downcast, the world on our shoulders. And we, we're carrying this heavy weight. But we have a promise of joy. We can come to the Lord. We can enter his house because of what Jesus has done. And we can pray for joy. The same way David has prayed for joy. In James 4 we read that we do not have because we do not ask. When you pray, do you ask for joy? Is that a closing statement in your prayer? Or does that rank really high up in your desires and what you are asking for God? Do we pray for joy? And we read in James that often we ask with the wrong motives. So even if we ask for joy, are we asking it with the right motives, with the overwhelming realization of God's great love? Fill us with joy, Lord, because we are able to enter your house. So I think what we learn from Psalm 5, and for this year that is ahead, is may the joy of the Lord be with us. The Lord has given us permission to have joy. The Lord has given us a promise to be joyful. And he's told us and teached us to pray for joy. Even in the most difficult situa situations, like David is in, he finishes by saying, Lord, please fill my heart with joy and surround me with your favor like a shield. Protect me from all these things so that I can just glow and revel in your joy. I pray that this will be what guides us for the year that's ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.